0: Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 73, part A of the Howie Games. Hopefully you are having a great week and this episode puts a little smile on your dial. There's no greater prize in English or Australian cricket than the Ashes. It's the ultimate contest steeped in history, tradition and passion. And now a little history lesson for you. From 1989, Australia was on a streak of tremendous success. For 15 beautiful years across eight wonderful series, the Aussies dominated the English. Then in 2005, A team stacked with superstars, including Gilchrist, who was on episode one of the Howie Games, Ponting, episode 20, Hayden, McGrath, Warren, episode 63, Langer, episode 53, Martin, episode 16, Lee, Clark, episode 11, and Gillespie arrived in England to make it nine straight series wins. But they didn't. England, led by this week's guest, Michael Vaughan, triumphed in one of the greatest cricket series ever staged.
1: Mystery, what is to be... So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by
0: This is Michael's story told by a great storyteller. Vorney is a very, very funny chap. As a commentator, he has few peers with his ability to explain the game, relate to the audience and make listeners laugh. As a cricketer, he was a gun bat and a fine leader of men. Enormous thanks in this episode, by the way, go to commentary genius Anthony Hudson, a man whose brilliant words add context to the story you're about to hear. And if you haven't already make sure you check out the new fancy Podcast One app. They have nailed it no matter what type of device you listen on, so check out the new Podcast One app.
1: You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try.
0: Now, as well as telling his story, in this app, Michael also explains in detail how England did the unthinkable in 2005 and won the Ashes, defeating a mighty, mighty team. Enjoy Michael Vaughan, OBE.
1: So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery what is to be revealed in King Selassie? Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion.
0: Welcome to the Howie Games. The great
2: man, Michael Vaughan. How are you, Vaughan? Yeah, very good. This is um, this is the podcast that everyone talks about. Thank you. Uh, I'll see how good you are when well, I finish in an hour or so. But this give me a is score the at one, the end. And this actually travels to the UK. Do you know that? Yeah. Howie Games actually, people in the UK have that little podcast app on the phone. Yep. I think they put it on late at night, you know, when they're trying to get a snooze. So I them to sleep. <laughs> yeah. There I was, you were being all positive yeah. for me. But I think that's more down to the guess. and... Yeah. Yeah, i would be a perfect kind of tablet at night to just make you go to sleep nicely.
1: Well,
0: I've been reading your book aptly titled Time to Declare, and that's been sending me to sleep at night, just before we get stuck into it. Um, your book... Great book. Terrible title. <laughs> come on, Varnie. It's a cricket clear. Time to declare. Did you come up with the name no, of that No, I
2: actually wanted to call it um, Manchester-born Yorkshire Cricketer. Right. Uh, they didn't want that. No? It's the publisher. That, look, look at Warnies. Warnies is called No Spin. Yeah. I mean, come bad. On. Yeah, I, I, I think the, um Warnie should have been Horny Warnie, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, yeah. <laughs> I think that would have gone down... Absolutely, perfectly. Well, yeah, the 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 title, look, the title's not me. <laughs> no. It's boring. It's Time not to me. Declare. Yeah, it, it's boring. I, I did another couple of books. A good one called "Calling the Shots." I mean, that's even worse. <laughs> <I
0: cannot>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a big summer. This will probably go to air prior to the Ashes, I think. But we're sitting here in South Yarra at the moment, just looking over the big apartment
2: complex that's being built here. Yeah, it's nice. Just been uh, down the showroom actually, in the, the girl. Oh, yeah. I said, what about the big one at the top? And she says, oh, it's uh, it's 25 mil. I said, like, so I just looked her in the eye. I said, yeah, but I want a big one. You know, I want one like <laughs> that can be put together. Can we put two together while I face drugs? She said, what, are you serious? I went, yeah, I want really big. I want like eight bedrooms. <laughs> I said, I'm a joke, in love. <laughs> Your Fox contract is obviously different to mine. How have you
1: found it? Uh,
0: no, it's been. Um, I think it's the way broadcasting is going, that we don't just need
2: locals in the local area for test matches. Yeah, well, I think cricket is a global game. You know, with you know, you're know, looking at all these T20 leagues around the world. Um, we all know more about every player around the world now because we see them more often. Yeah. You go back 15, 20 years, we'd see players every now and again in a test or a one-day. But because of all these leagues around the world now, we're all commenting, you know, in social media. We're all kind of actively making comment on pretty much every player in the world. So I think it's the, the right way for Broadcast to go. You know, we, we, we've had it in the UK. Michael Holden's been over for mm-hmm. many years. Warney comes and does pretty much all the series. You look at Tony Gregg over here for Channel 9 for many years. And I think it's good to have um, commentators that aren't emotionally attached to teams you know, I've been with England for well, pretty much twenty odd years as a player and a, and a broadcaster, and particularly the last ten years as a broadcaster. And you are emotionally tied to them, of course. Yeah. You know, you arrive on the morning of the match and you're nervous for them, but of course you've got to give an honest assessment, and you have to say what you see. Uh, you can't be a broadcaster if you're not going to give that opinion. But I've really enjoyed being out here just watching cricket. And just watching the game and trying to make comment on the game without that emotional attachment to any of the teams. I just like watching good cricket. I like watching people fight. I like watching players come through difficult times. Um, I like watching skill. What's the difference between broadcasting in England and broadcasting in Australia? Is there one? Um, I think there's a slight difference. I think over here I'd say it's a little bit more relaxed. You know, I um, I think it suits my style more here. Um, I I just think there's a there's there's quite a bit of ego and has to be in in sport and there has to be in broadcast as well and I would say of what I've found there's not as much ego here as there is back home in the UK. Why? In what way? I just think there's um, there's a lot of competition around the world and I think there's a lot of competition here, but I've been amazed of how well you know looking at Fox and Seven, there's two big stations broadcasting the game there's a lot of commentators a lot of production staff there's a lot of directors on on, on the show at the, at the games and I just don't know if that would work in the UK you know BT took the cricket off Sky uh, for the Ashes and you know it was uproar and I just can't see how that kind of relationship would work in the, the UK well, we'll find out next year because the BBC are broadcasting some of the the, the new hundred ball competition um, with Sky so that'll be that'll be interesting to see how that goes but i just think over here there's a there's a general love for cricket because it's the number one sport it's the the only real national sport yeah. and throughout the time that cricket's on there's no other sport so you do feel that you're right at the, the pinnacle of people's uh, front rooms and you know, back home in the UK, I think we're competing with so many sports all year round. You're looking at rugby leagues played through our summer. Um, pretty much every summer, there's either an Olympics or a European Championships or a World Cup football. Uh, Wimbledon's at the heart of our Test match kind of start season against the what you call the better team or the mo- most mm. profile side in the summer. Um, so I would say it's uh, it, it's great to be here just talking about a sport that pretty much you feel that everyone's watching. You know, you feel that when you've said something or done something on the television uh, or you've made a comment, you are going to a pub and someone will just say, oh, I, I heard you yesterday, you muppet. Yeah. Didn't agree with you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I haven't done that much live TV in England, but I don't think that happens as much. Um, you know, there's so much more on at the same time. And that's why I enjoy I mean, obviously, I enjoy the weather as well. The weather's pretty good and golf courses are nice. and. The beers are alright as well, and the wines, so no, I've, I've really enjoyed it, I have uh, you know hope to be back over the next few years.
0: I'm sure you will be. Uh, you've met my two kids, the Pickle and the Big Penguin, <laughs> who normally come in later in the show. I think you met them up at Spotless Stadium, but that, that, that answer you've given me um, is quite relevant. I haven't seen the kids for four days, because I've been travelling around in Big Bash games with you, so they actually sent me this morning, before going back to school, their questions, so you get Sky, the Pickle, right off the top. Right. Pickle here. I think you sound great on Fox cricket. Daddy thinks he should be allowed to commentate with his thongs on. Because he said he'd feel even more relaxed. Do you think that's a good idea?
2: Pickle, I think that's a wonderful idea. Yes. And I'm gonna go further with the thongs. It's, there's a few little problems in Australia. There's a lot of rules. Yes. Lots and lots of rules. <laughs> Actually, I don't quite the bar shut too early. Yep. I don't know why, ten o'clock. And and it's not that, you know, can I have another eat? And they go, no. No, but, you know, we've been here for... No, we're shut. And they just kick you out. I mean, I don't get that. We've become a society. Rules. Yeah, I, I I I get that. That's uh, not quite in what I would look at an Australian and think, mm. oh, you know, they all like a little bit of a party. They all like to have a few. And That's how we used to be. We yeah. used to rebel against rules in this country. Too many rules in Australia. And and the other big rule is that uh, I know we're talking a little bit of the high excellence of life, but the Qantas Lounge. Oh, uh. I know you've been there before, but the thong's not allowed in the Qantas lounge. So I walk in with a pair of thongs. Sorry, Mr. Vaughan, you're not allowed in here. And then a lady walks in with a pair of, you know, sandals on. Yes. So I could have said, in you come, madam. I mean, what's the difference? Your
0: man, Kevin Peterson, blew up big time on social media well, last year. Well, so he year. should, and I get that. But he I mean, wasn't
2: allowed in. Should be allowed in. I mean, in Australia, it's boiling hot. You're wearing a, a pair of thongs, and as you should be allowed on, on commentary. Yes. I like Mark, I saw Mark Bosnich work at Fox uh, just the other day in the studio. And he's behind the desk with his suit and he looks immaculate. Yep. But what people don't know, he's got short, shorts and thongs on <laughs> under that desk. But he rolls his, his, and, his and own run. That is what I like to see. So, yeah, Howie and Pickle, I think you should uh, wear the thong. And Good. particularly when you're doing the roaming around the you know, around the field. That's the way forward. You should have shorts and thongs on. That's the Well, no you've question. come up to
0: my hotel room today with no actual shoes on and I don't have any on, so we're both sitting here bare feet. You've got your green, healthy juice and you've been... You've been at F45 this F45, morning?
2: F45, yeah. I mean, I don't know what's come into me while well, I've been in Australia. You've thought, been working hard. I have, yeah. I mean, I think it's these big bash games. It's been good because they've been at night and the day-night test match, night time, so... How'd you go in the F45? By the time you get back to the hotel, everything's shut. Yeah. So you can't have a drink. So I reckon I've had the healthiest four weeks of my life. How'd you go this morning? F45, You told yeah. me last night you were dreading it. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as the one in... Uh, I did one in Cooja with Michael Lum, the sixs manager, ex-England player, and that was sick. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I had to walk out the back. There was a bowling green. And it, it, it needed a, I wouldn't say it was the most pristine piece of grass, but it was a lot worse by the time I'd finished with right. it. Just, just gave it a little bit of a splatter.
0: <laughs> that is the best bowling club in Australia, though. Overlooking could you All right, we'll go back to the start yeah. with you, which is a bit incongruous sitting here in the sunshine in Australia, but you grew up Lancashire?
2: Yeah, Manchester. Right. Yeah, I was um, born in Salford. Um, and then I moved to Sheffield with my dad's job when I was eight. I think it was eight, eight or nine. Um, I got run over in Manchester. Run over? Yeah, nearly. I, I fractured my skull. So I, it At was what age? Seven. I was on my budgie bike and I'd gone to play some football or cricket with my brother and a friend and we kind of were coming back and I got on my budgie bike and went across this road and this car flew, smashed me in the air, fractured my leg in about Ooh. four places, fractured my skull. And I was put against this tree, and obviously the tra- traffic stops, and I didn't know at the time, obviously I'm a kid. But my granny and grandpa were in the traffic, and they didn't know it was me on the tree. Just sat there, blood all over me. You're kidding. Yeah. So I was in hospital for about six weeks, uh, Hope Hospital, and this is where my love of cricket came because I had to watch television
0: uh, and cricket was on
2: the TV. <laughs> and I always remember my, my dad was a big, you know, he played in the local leagues. He was the captain of the 3rd Eleven at uh, Worsley Creek, where we lived. And he, um, he was a big cricket fan and watched and went and watched a lot of the test matches. And in his business, he, they used to sponsor and help out beneficiaries. Um, and for whatever reason, he I think he put an advert in, a in I think, David Bairstow's uh, testimonial uh, magazine, and then one day in hospital, I always remember it, he arrived with a, you won't know the brand, St. Peter's the Bat, real old-fashioned Oh, the SP? Man. Yeah, SP. Yeah, I know the SP. Signed by David Bester. Right. St. Michael, best wishes, get well soon. It's Johnny Bester's father. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first love. And <laughs> I always remember, you know, I've got a picture, it's in the book of me in, in my wheelchair. Yeah. With my, my, my leg up with, in a pot with my SP. With your SP, FB, yeah. There you go. So that's where my, my real, I mean, I enjoyed cricket when I was a kid, but I, I was mad on football. I absolutely, I'm still am obsessed with with football, and and I, I don't make, and you know, I'm dead on it. I, I I would love to have been a footballer. Did you play footy? Yeah, as I was a kid? at Sheffield Wednesday for a while, but I wasn't quite good enough. So, I, at what age were you? With uh, which is the club you love and support? Oh yeah, now? I love them. Yeah, I mean, and it was because my dad's company sponsored the away end. Uh, unfortunately, you know the, the disaster, the Hillsborough disaster. The end that the disaster happened was my father's company on the roof. sponsored presto tools um and the chairman of the company was the chairman of sheffield wednesday so when we moved over to sheffield we just kind of was at sheffield wednesday all the time and we could and i was eight or nine i'm running amok you know i could go in the dressing rooms can run around (laughs) wherever i wanted it was incredible times and you know we used to always go down there so my love of football was was huge my brother was more into cricket my brother was a good cricketer, two years older. And when we moved to Sheffield, we, we were close to <clears throat> the cricket club where, you know, I came through and Joe Root has come through, Sheffield Collegiate, Aberdale Park, where Yorkshire played some county matches every year. And we'd always bunk off school and, and nip through the, the hedge to, to make sure we could watch. <laughs> um, and it was around probably 10, 11, when my brother was playing for the under-12, 13s, that I went down to the nets and we had a great coach down there called Jack Bethel Old School. Like never praise you, you know, even if you've got runs he'd say okay, get some more next week <laughs> proper blunt Yorkshire but a brilliant coach really really good technical coach and really installed the disciplines of batting and I netted for a few weeks and he then said uh, you're going to go up to Yorkshire for a trial and I'd only played like two games and I said what he said no you're going to go to Woodhouse Grove School you're going to go to the Yorkshire under 11's trials anyway mum drove me up and it was in those days what you had to put. Like we had one jumper, one white, like uh, woolly cricket sweater. And if you play for different teams, you had Velcro on the front of your sweater, and you changed the badge.
0: <laughs> I've never heard that. Before. Yeah, and I
2: had Sheffield schools, like because I played a couple of games in Sheffield schools, basically in Sheffield. If you were one of eleven players, you weren't going to get picked. You know, there was only eleven of us that played in the city, so you're going to get the team. And I went up to Weatherfield Group and and I had this trial. It was an afternoon trial. I got in. So, I'd only played a few was in the Yorkshire Under 11s team. Wow. And I was like, well, I, I've never played more than really a 20 over game. And this was now going to be time cricket, like three and a half hours in the field. So, that was where it all started to get not serious, but my mind started to trigger. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, I, I could be pretty good at this. I was never, ever the best at that age ever. Were you not? No. Nah. So, you weren't a Ricky Ponting? No, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. No, nah, I, I used to bowl outswing. Used to charge in and bowl it. Did you now? Yeah, and back, you know, five or six. Um, but what happened at the club is they really pushed me, you know, they saw a couple a bit, and they started playing me and because my brother was in the thirties, I'd rock up, you know, like a little kid and think, oh, if someone doesn't turn up, I'm in. And every game there's always someone. So mm. I ended up playing above, you know, three or four years. And then from around 13, they just threw me into the men's stuff. And we were so lucky because it was a county ground. We had great nets. We had really good facilities, grass nets. We had a really good pitch. And I was playing from the age of 13, 14 in a first team that had four or five minor counties players. And then we had Ian Bishop as an overseas pro. In your team? Yep. Kenny Benjamin as an overseas pro. So I'm on a Tuesday, Thursday night as a 13, 14 facing those two in the nets. You're facing Ian Bishop? Yeah, I'm in the nets at Aberdale Park facing those guys. No. Yeah, and uh, that is my... I, I, I say to this day that that's when I started to develop as a cricket and that's the only way that you can get better is getting thrown in what if you're 13 or 14 Ian Bishop who
0: I've had the pleasure of commentating with a big kind-hearted soul but when he was bowing nearly killed Justin Langer here in his first test match um in Adelaide how hard was he going to a 13 14 year
2: old Michael Bourne he he was swinging him away but he he wasn't you know trying to hurt me and he was coming back from that that back injury so he wasn't what, what he was before I mean yeah, I saw, still, him, you I, saw I, I saw him bowl for Derbyshire against I think it was Yorkshire at Chesterfield. and I, I've never seen anyone bowl that quick Wow! and it was a bit of a, a dodgy wicket and he was flying through and then when we had Ke- Kenny Benjamin was the coolest guy I think we had him for two years he just slept
1: <laughs>
2: he? Yeah. he just slept all day and then he bowled and then he slept and then he went out and then he slept.
0: <laughs> so, what was else was going on in your life? You're going through school at this yeah, day, school. What were you like as a student?
2: Well, uh, I did. At what? Were I, you thinking I want to play sport for a living or no? No, I, I, I think oh. I was. I mean, it's hard to kind of remember, but I just love sport. Mm. You know, everything about my school life, so every project I did was sport. Ugh. You know, so I remember in um, woodwork and we had to make something, and I, I made a, a cricket bat knocker in a. <laughs> Like a, a mallet-type yeah, thing. Yeah, I, and, and every, you know, every art, you know, to teach you what you're going to I draw it like a football stadium.
0: Okay.
2: You know, everything in my life was just geared to sport. You know, li- listening to the radio late at night, you know, and, and just kind of t- kind of turning the TV on when mum not hearing so I could walk midweek soccer special at half ten on a Wednesday night to get the games. And, you know, I just used to idolise sports people. You know, I'd get every magazine, the match magazine, that's a football magazine, the cricketer would arrive. I knew exactly when it would arrive. I'd get excited that it was the first week of the month and you knew the cricket was going to come through the door. (laughs) And if it didn't arrive on a Monday, I was like, where is it? Tuesday, I'd be (laughs) down there making sure that it was still there. And when the the, the equipment brochure comes out for the following year, oh, I used to circle every bat or pair of gloves or... In new bag that I'd, I'd, I'd try and ask mum to try and get hold of. And I remember saving up to get m- my first bat. When and did I you get it? It was a Moore striker. And I got the bus into town, Sug Sports in Sheffield, and got my Sug Sports striker. It was £11.50. And then a year later, <laughs> I saved up, and there was a, an old guy in, in Elland in Yorkshire. And he, he ran a, a company called Ace, Ace of Elland. And he made his own bats. And I travelled up with my dad to go and have my own bat made and I've still got it. You've still got the bat? Yeah, Ace of Ellen, yeah. And it was £13.50. Wow. Yeah, this willow bat that was handcrafted in front of me. Huh. £13.50, like a toothpick. I don't want to use it now, but <laughs> no, it's still that. That first bat is probably... I and mean, I'm very fortunate to have a collection of the legend's bats. You know, Callis has given me a bat. Sachin, uh, Brian Lara, uh, Ricky, uh, Freddie Flintoff-Peterson, uh, Mike Atherton. You know, I've kind of collected bats along the way. Where but do you keep them? They're in a room at the house. Right. Uh, they're not on the wall. You know, I've moved house recently and I think the wife got sick of looking at cricket stuff. Yeah. And I kind of get it. If your beautiful wife said, right,
0: you've got to throw all those bats
2: out except one. I'd keep the one I got made. Right. That's you took yeah. out Lara's bat. I'd, yeah, because that, that first bat, I think, I think of the first one you get made, and mm. it's for me. You know, it was the size for me at that time and... There's more memories in that bat than there is in the legends bats I've got because they're just great, they're pieces of memorabilia and you know I'm sure my little boy will love those in time and I look at them and feel very honoured and privileged that I actually walked onto a cricket field with those guys but that first bat, no one can take that away from me. A lot of people in this part of the world
0: won't understand and I didn't realise till I read Time to Declare... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I understood the rivalry between Lancashire and Yorkshire, but a lot of people won't. J- sort of just tell me a, about that and, and Yorkshire's policy
2: prior to you coming on the scene. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's it's not as big now, I don't think, but back in the day, man, yeah. you're talking of sell-out crowds. You know, 30,000, 40,000 going to watch the Roses clashes back in the 60s, 70s. and you know, I made my debut against Lancashire in '94. And I reckon there was probably ten to 11,000 there. But you were playing for Yorkshire. Yeah, I was. And, and but you were a lad from Lancashire. Yeah, that that was interesting around the time I was playing for Yorkshire boys because I knew I couldn't play for Yorkshire. So I played for the Yorkshire 12. Why 11s, couldn't you 12, play for them? Because you had to be born in the county. Right. So around my years of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I knew I was playing for a team that I couldn't play for. But full credit to Yorkshire because I was obviously schooling in Yorkshire, it was Yorkshire schoolboys they just picked what they felt was the best team Um, but I was trialling and and netting at North Ants so my mum and dad would drive me down to North Ants on a Saturday or a Sunday Um, I went to Lancashire Lancashire could have signed me because at around 15 at that time you could sign like schoolboy forms and Lancashire could have signed me and I got very lucky in a way that there was a coach at Yorkshire called Steve Oldham and D- Doug Padgett, my old, my old uh, kind of coach that was with me all, all my career. And uh, we had a chief exec called Chris Hassel, who was from Lancashire and had worked at Lancashire now, was working for Yorkshire. And they looked at the way that I'd been developed through Yorkshire cricket. You know, I'd played pretty much all my cricket in Yorkshire. I might have played a... Uh, a kind of plastic ball game in Manchester. I might have played a bit in the garden with my brother, but all my cricket was developed in Yorkshire. And they just came to me one day, I think it was around 15, and I was starting to play well. I'd started to be moved up the order. I got my opportunity when I was 14 to about three. The that I was generally at seven, playing for Yorkshire boys. It was the first game of the season. Might have been the 15s, actually. And the coach, Mr. Steen, uh, <laughs> just comes to me and says, oh, I can't remember the kid's name, but he'd not turned up. And rather than move everyone up, Mr. Steen just went, uh, Vaughn, you bat three today, and I got 99. So he just kept me at three, and I got, I think, 1,100 runs that that summer. It was the Daily Telegraph, Young Cricketer of the Year. Mike Gatting gave me a bat at Lord's. And that was because of that one chance, that opportunity. I, I still look back at that day and think, if I'd not moved to number three, where would I be? Because that was really when I, I went to a different level. And it was around then that Yorkshire started to go, wait a minute, we've got a kid here that's done so well for us. We don't want to lose him. So they, well, they had to go through committees, votes, and they bent over backwards to allow me to sign. The first... The first ever... Englishman to, not you, from Yorkshire. I was the first to put my name on wow. a piece of paper, yeah. was so it was a big deal then? Yeah, it was huge. It was a big press conference. But <laughs> press conference? That, there was an announcement that I was signed. Then there was going to be a, yeah, I was. 15, I did a press conference at Sheffield-Abidale Park with with the chief exec and the coach at of the club age? and the captain, uh, Martin Moxon. 15, 16. Well, I wish I could get my hands on that. Yeah. Oh, it was by blazer on. I always remember it. It was uh, my, my my own club when Yorkshire were playing there. Um, and I think around that time, Yorkshire had signed Craig McDermott, So they changed the policy. So I was the first to put my name on a piece of paper for the academy um, position. Then Craig McDermott signed. Craig McDermott got injured, and then we got someone called Sachin Tendulkar. So Sachin became the first. And then we signed someone called Richard Stent, a left-arm spinner from Worcestershire, who was not born in the county. But I am renowned in Yorkshire for the one that triggered it. Wow. I was the one that kind of uh, put my name and you know it was harder time I remember when I was 12 I was playing um, at Aberdale Park and the, the first team Yorkshire were there and I was playing in front of the, the, the dressing room down below they were on the balcony and I was hitting a, a wimble, you know the orange wimble, with my mates and it had rained so it was skidding off and we played playing for like 14 yards and the bouncers were coming and we are ducking and weaving and Doug Padgett was on the balcony watching and Peter Hartley who I ended up playing with on my debut and played for a number of years and he's now an umpire was watching over with the weekkeeper Richard Blakey and I don't know until a few years later, but they said, oh, this kid can play. So anyway, Doug Padgett came down. And he came and said, oh, youngster, can I have a word? And I said, yes, of course you can. He says, can I have your number? I said, yeah. He said, he said, your name? I said, Michael. And he said, no. I said, there's my number. He said, right, I'll be giving your dad a ring. I said, OK. Anyway, about two weeks later, I'm sat in the front room. And the phone goes. And I could hear my dad in the kitchen. And he goes, yeah, yeah it is Mr Vaughan. Um, and it was Joe Lister, the secretary at the time of Yorkshire. And I could hear the conversation, I go, yep, yep, Michael, yeah, he was batting, yep, Doug Padgett, yep, that's the one, yep. And then my dad goes, quiet. And then he walks in, I said, Dad, what happened there? He said, oh, bizarre. Joe, Lister, the secretary of Yorkshire, was on the phone asking about you. And then just just the last question, he said, oh, can I just ask, Michael was born in Yorkshire, wasn't he? And my dad had gone, no. He slammed the phone down. (laughs) (laughs) Phone <laughs> slammed down, gone. <laughs>
0: so you, you eventually started playing for Yorkshire, and I loved reading in your book about the life of a, a county pro, but involved in Yorkshire at the time,
2: you were talking about Sasson, yeah. Richie Richardson. Oh, Richie Rich, yeah.
0: Did you spend much time with Richie Rich? You used to yeah, go used to, he, to and from games, Yeah, he used to he? pick
2: me up in his massive maroon Mercedes. Yeah, <laughs> Richie used, did? Yeah, Richie Rich, yeah. Mine's like the E500 back in the It was massive, and I used to sit in the in the front... And we used to just travel, and so he used to always wear his Oakleys. He'd wear his Oakleys driving in the bars at night, in warm-ups, in the field. I'm sure he slept in them. And I always remember we were travelling back from... We got in trouble, actually, me and Rich, because I used to love his cut shot. So I used to say to him, come on, teach me that cut shot. So every morning in warm-ups, we'd go and just practice the cut shot. And then he was ahead of his time. He used to say, look, you've got to practice left-handed. Don't know where the game will go. So I just practiced left-handed, and Richie's practiced left-handed. We weren't getting many runs at the time. The coach was going, "Were well, you two? Just, what about right-handed? You can't get any runs right-handed." But I used to try and play this cut shot all the time. And it got me out on a few occasions, and the coach took me to one side and said, "Look, you're not Richie Rich. Get over it. Start playing the way that you can play, not like him." But it used to drive him out. When we were coming back from Gloucester. And we'd had a long day in the field, I think. I think we'd lost or... It had been close. Anyway, we're driving back to Sheffield. He's dropping me off. He used to drop me off at Junction 36 and my mum would pick me up. And we're driving at the M1 and he just looked over. He goes, youngster, I'm tired. I said, all right, Rich, not long. He goes, no, I need I need a kip. I went, all right. So I'm thinking, well, when he gets home, he'll have a kip. <laughs> M1, three lanes, everyone's going to 85. He pulls in on the hard shoulder. <laughs> just pulls in on the hard shoulder. He goes just 20 minutes <laughs> and I'm looking at him and go and I can't say anything to Rich, Rich of course he, he just declines his chair just go, and these cars are flying by and I'm looking at him, what do I do here I mean I, this is illegal you're not allowed to do this anyway 20 minutes later he goes that'll do and he just drove <laughs> <laughs> oh he was great he, he was great he, he fell asleep I remember playing at uh, Edgbaston and you imagine an old fashioned coach Doug Padgett he's like discipline his grit you know you fight you watch every ball you study the game you worship the game and all of a sudden what these overseas pros brought was not the Yorkshire way the Yorkshire way was that and Richie Rich was playing at Heshbaston I always remember he had this uh you know the harlequin helmet all the different colored yeah. helmets <laughs> I and mean, that doesn't go down well with Yorkshire mate. wouldn't have thought so Richie Rich has got it on <laughs> and he's waiting to bat and he's facing uh you know Donald's bowling quick Alan Donald Alan Donald's bowling quick and uh, the coach, and we'd look, I think I'd gone out for 20 or something, and we're in you know, a tight situation. And he looks in the dressing room, and Richard Richards he's in there, he's fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> faster kid, Rich. And the coach said, What is it? He's faster than all of a sudden, Richard, you're in. <laughs> Wakes up, walks out of back, made the most magnificent 80. Did he? Ever. <laughs> and what I found when he was facing just county players, he was useless. As soon as he came up against Courtney Walsh, Curtly Ambrose, Alan Donald lifted his game wazi macram. It was almost like right this is what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Facing Tom Noddies around the county sing on little green tops, absolutely useless Richie. You get him against the pace and the time to show off his cut shot and his pull shot. In a way he, went. Oh, on. it was a joy to watch. It.
0: Back to Vaughanee in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, coming out on Thursday, August the 15th, is basketball legend Andrew Gaze, a man who I have been trying to get on this show from the very first episode. A welcome to the Howie Games, a man that has no peer in this sport as far as basketball is concerned, Andrew oh. Gaze. Hello to you, Gaze.
1: <laughs> I appreciate the introduction, but uh, that, that is not uh, true. There are many, many peers, and uh, but very humbled that you would introduce me in that manner. Can I just say right off mm. the top, and you know
0: I love you, I've got enormous oh, respect dear. and love for Here you. Here comes a whack. But this podcast <laughs> has been going for over two years, and yes. I've been speaking to your people for over well. two years, trying to get you on. <laughs> and,
1: and, and why has it taken so long? That I thought we were friends, mm. but apparently yeah. that, doesn't cover this now you know that's not true that and, is spot uh, on because firstly <laughs> i don't have any people <laughs> right. i have me and i still recall approximately oh, it would have been 18 months ago No. Uh, gazy uh this friday we're a chance love to want to be a part of it and then uh friday was, sorry gazy no worries i can't do it this week <laughs> bit under the pump got a few other things i've got to attend to and then um uh, no further correspondence handed into. A different recommendation and memory from
0: me because all I got back from your p- <laughs> people. I don't have people. Is I got an email saying until this show hits 20 million, <laughs> oh, which true. it did last week, <laughs> it. until it hits 20 million downloads, <laughs> our man Andrew <laughs> won't appear. Well, and as soon as the magical
1: number came up, my phone's ringing, Andrew's well, ready to come on your show. Well, you're on the front foot here because I wasn't aware of that fact and I was actually going to come here in here and, and just set the record straight that I, I feel a little embarrassed because um, – you know, I thought I'd be a little bit higher up on peaking order, and here I am, what number seventy-five guest. So we've actually gone through 74 more important people than me.
0: That is the world's funniest basketballer, Andrew Gaze, coming to you on Thursday, August 15. Alrighty, back to Vaugnie. Was it as much fun as it looks on the outside looking in, being a county pro? Just like we look at it here and those beautiful cricket grounds you play, and you just seem to play so much cricket. Like if you love cricket, you're playing oh, it's five, six days a week and then one day is on Sundays.
2: It's changed a bit because they play at all the major venues now. You know, we used to play at you know, Harrogate, Middlesbrough, Scarborough, they still play there, Sheffield. Um, you'd play... Two or three games at Headingley. Now they play the majority of the games at Headley uh, and you go around to like Guildford, Ilford, all these grounds around the country. It was magnificent. But my first week was against Lancashire, so my debut was against Wasim. Wasim Akram. Wasim Akram, Peter Martin, Glen Chappell, Phil De Freitas. Good attack, and it was a beautiful week. And. I always remember I arrived at the, the hotel we were staying at the Bowden Hotel on the Wednesday night I'd been playing for the England Under 19s and I got the call up in the dressing room at Trent Bridge from the coach rings the dressing room no mobiles uh, Vaughan here you're in the first team this week I was like, alright better room with mum she's got to drop me off so mum dropped me off at the Bowdoin Hotel <laughs> strolling with my bags uh, I'm rooming with Peter Hartley so you're rooming with like, I'm rooming with the senior pro so I arrive at around 6 I go oh, Pete what's happening he goes in the bar I was like alright well, that's what's It goes down I three or four pints the night before that was the norm went to bed slept okay went to the ground win the toss we're batting I went in first with Martin Moxon got 64 got peppered by Wazim got hit everywhere Addison's at first slip Fairbrother the second slip Warren Hegg behind the uh, wow. with the gloves on and I got peppered and the physio had to stay on the side of the pitch like just beyond the boundary ropes because I got hitting on, the, on the hand on the arm it was rapid pitch it was bouncy and Wazim just peppered me got away with it, got 60-odd and played quite nicely. Uh, that night, was career best, so I had to go buy all the all the lads a drink. I always remember TGI Fridays on the way back, went to the Bowden Hotel, a couple more, Fountain Bar in, in Hale Village. You know, I'm, I'm dead honest, I think it's in the book, got lucky. You know, it was got, got lucky. <laughs> it is in the book. Right, Friday, <laughs> went out to field, mid-afternoon, I always remember it. The, the skipper comes up to me and goes, young'un, off the pitch, going and ask their team where the best pubs are tonight. <laughs> I was like, seriously? I went, yeah, off you go. So in the I, middle of the game. Yeah, so I said to the... Oh, I, did, I just need a piss. Off the pitch, upstairs is the Lancashire dressing room. We're downstairs. I walk up the dressing room, up the stairs, knock on the dressing room door. About 3.30 in the afternoon. Why is it? Macram opens the door with a piece of paper. I went, che- cheers, Waz. What's that? He said, I know what you're coming for. There you go. Piece of paper with a list of pubs. Put it in my pocket. Downstairs, onto the pitch. Ran straight up to the skipper. Went, skip. There you go, piece of paper and everyone must have thought that the skipper because there was a bit on the television it must have thought that the skippers had some tactics <laughs> sent out to the bridge he just had a list of pubs <laughs> so I we went to a few of those pubs the second day got lucky again we're playing well in the game we got a good score Goffey bowled magnificent it was around that time that Goffey started reverse swinging the ball Richie Richardson had made Goffey into the bowler right. Richie had sat him down one day and said what are you being a medium pace Bowl quick ball quick hit the stumps just changed him overnight mm. and he bowled reverse swing bowled him out second innings got 28 got a bit of peppering again um, that was the days when you'd play Thursday Friday Saturday and then Sunday was Sunday league so Saturday night was what you call a Saturday night club so team gathering we all had to get our togas on
0: <laughs> no. yeah.
2: me and Richard Richardson walking through the hotel at Bowdoin with a toga on <laughs> toga party toga party Barry Wood, remember the yes ex-Lancashire England opening batsman? He came because he was friends with the coach, Steve Oldham, at the time. And he joined the toga party and did all these drinking games. I was sick in the corner. and then went back into the village of Hale, got lucky again. So I'm three and three, it seems on top, and I don't think I'm playing the next day because, you know, I'm a young kid, I've been picked for the four-day stuff. But Richie did his things, so I'm playing. I'm playing in front of 16,000 at Old Trafford on the Sunday, could hardly see fielded down. They just say, Young, you're down in the silly corner in front of all their idiots. Just <laughs> they gave me a barrage for like two hours in the field, dropped a catch, and then got about six runs. Sunday night, we went back, was a bit tired, didn't get lucky on the Sunday. Went back on the Monday, goffy balled him out, we won the game. And I remember my dad couldn't come because he was working. Mum would have been there, and dad rings me up and he said, How was it? I said, Dad, I said, You'd never believe this. I said, it's like a stag do, but you've got to play <laughs> cricket. I said, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. This is ridiculous. He says, well, enjoy it as long as it lasts. I said, because I think you've made the right career choice. <laughs>
0: so somehow through all that, mate, you, you managed to make runs. Time goes on. We, we don't have um, all day to to digress into too many innings, which is a shame for me. But you made your test debut against South Africa. Yep. Um, what's it like for the first time when you walk out o- onto a ground
2: with the England Lions as you guys oh, have it's them it's scary. On your- I mean, he, this test tab- day, I remember Nass coming up to me, and said, uh, what's important about test week is you'll see the senior pros change. You know, warm-up weeks is about just getting your eyes in and just getting your movements right. Test week, they switch on, they're different. So, particularly on the morning of the match, just study others, study, you know, Stewie, just study the, the likes of, you know, Mark Butcher, these players that have played a bit, just just see what they do. So, I went, OK, I said, what, before the match, I said, no, when, when we got to bat, just trying to get an eye of, of what they're going to be about, I went, cool. Anyway, we lose the toss, it's a bit misly in uh, in Joburg, and uh, before I at two for two, <laughs> first over. <laughs> Not much chance not, to study not, those blokes. No, no I've not got a chance to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> Strolled out there two for two, non-strikers end. Before I faced the ball, with two for four. Which in, so you're four out for two runs? Yeah, yeah. But, so we, we' Chris Adams is strolling at six. And I always remember Grizzly coming up to me and goes, mate, mate, what's he doing? I, I, I remember looking at him and going, I don't think you're going to go far in this game, <laughs> Chris. I haven't faced the ball yet. I've got no <laughs> <laughs> clue. <laughs> Yeah, we got, and, and this is our times of change. I think I got 34, 34. It was zipping around. Donald was bowling quickly. It was, you know, it was a pitch that was doing all sorts. Pollock was bowling nicely as well. Hansi Cronje was playing. He bowled a few, actually. I don't know why he bowled a few. He bowled a few swingers. And I was like the saviour of English cricket could I scored 34. 34, <laughs> Freddie, I've got 36. Me and Freddie put on a few runs. And it was like, these two are going to save English cricket. I was like, what? We've only got... Back like a small amount of runs, but that's where English cricket was back then. Mm. You know, we were in the, the doldrums. We really were, and we got hammered on that trip. We we got beat heavenly We only ended up losing two one, but we were we were like battered. You know, we were never in any of the contests, and then we won the last game because, you know, it, it's it's now common knowledge. It was a fix. You know, the game had to be a result. That last day, Hansi Cronje uh, needed a result. It had to be a win or a loss, and. You know, I got 76, got my the match. Didn't get any leather jackets. <laughs> Pulled away by Garth for four. And England win the fifth test match of this five test series. Set up by a declaration earlier in the day. And then two innings forfeited. But what wonderful entertainment there's been. Well, that was... Uh... Did you have any idea? No. No, I mean we all just felt because it rained so much South Africa had batted and it rained so much and there was a lot of England supporters out there probably five or 6,000 and you got to the last day they'd won the series and it just felt the right thing to be doing you know give the crowd that had turned up a a chance to watch a contest rather than just watch test match cricket for just watching test match cricket it just seemed to me that it was the right thing to do Um, unfortunately and I, I would say it'd be the right thing to do now but because That happened. Mm. I think it kind of gets people talking to you, which if it happens again. Mm. And I just think, you know, you you go to county cricket, it happens. You set up a game on the last day, if you've had rain, you go into three day second eleven cricket, it happens. You know, but because it happened in test match cricket and it's been since known that it was a a fix, um, you know, I think it's kind of changed the way people look at the game, which is unfortunate.
0: You've played a lot of cricket, you've seen a lot of cricketers, you've seen possibly the greatest test innings of all time when a chap made 400. (laughs)
2: <laughs> 440 for BC Lara. The cleverest man that I played with was Ashley Giles. He arrived on that first morning and he was sick. <laughs> and Gareth Batty had to play. <laughs> right. And poor old Gareth. I mean, we had him out on naught. He was caught behind, Mara. Lara? On naught. he was out. Caught behind. DRS would have on your way, Brian. What, Little Edge? Steve Harmison, feather through to the keeper, not out. (laughs) No. Not out. (laughs) He went on a maple (laughs) outfit. I mean, talk about making your kind of cost for a mistake, but he he was out. Good delivery. Harmison celebrating. The keeper and the slips are celebrating, but no one else is moving. The one thing certainly that has not moved is Daryl Hare's hand i the kid Scott who was keeping for Durham back in the day when I think Chris Scott, I think his name was. He was keeping behind the stumps and he dropped Brian Lara when he was playing for Warwickshire on I think about 30 or 40. And it's I don't know if he was in the slips. but someone said, Oh, hope he don't make you count, cost that you know. Hope he don't go on and get 100, well, but he got 500. <laughs> <laughs> 501.
0: So so how is how, how's a Test match progressing out in the field when Lara brings up 100? and then 200, and then 300.
2: Oh, at- we, we wanted him to get it. Right. We were like, come on. Because it was behind that, you know, such a long period of time, we kind of knew he was taking time out of the game, and we were like, we were think, 3-0 up in the series. And I just felt sorry for Gareth Bowie because we tried everything, and he just toyed us. So Gareth said, come on, bring me down up, just try and get him to do something. As soon as he brought me in, I just wiped it over his head for six. Put me down back, he'd just knock it for ones and every like, third or four. Come on, let's just try mid off or mid off, mid off downstairs, whack him into the stands for six. I mean, he 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 was a freak. There goes the sweep. There it is. Perhaps the most significant single ever in the history of Test match cricket. Brian Charles Lara becomes the first man in the history of the game to register a score of four hundred. He was one the one player. And I I was fortunate to captain against a lot of the greats, you know, Ricky Ponting, Sachin, great, great players. But Brian Lara was the only player that I thought took the piss out of me as a captain. Wow. Out in the field. It was at the Oval, 2004. And again, we were 3-0, we were were hammering the West Indies. And throughout that series, we'd done nicely against him. We kind of kept him quiet. And then it was at the Oval that, again, we were on top, but he went out to bat. And we'd try 7-2 offside field, and he'd just take the piss. He'd just use his wrist and get it onto the onside. And then we'd go straight and try and get him hitting through the offside, and he'd just do that. He, he, he just took the piss out of me. Wherever I created a gap, he just hit it into the gap. And I kept on looking at him going, there's only a small few people can do that. And he was one of them. He was just, just that kind of player that you just knew that if he arrived... We played against him in 2001... At Old Trafford. And again, I think the series were at 2-1 at the time. We were winning. We'd, we'd gone 1-0 down. Then we won two on the trot. We'd won at Lord's in the title. And then we'd gone to Henley. We'd bowled him out for 50-odd on the two-day game. We beat him in two days. And then we're at Old Trafford. It was Stewie's 100th game. And he hadn't had a great time of it, Lara. And Craig White had got him out a couple of times around his legs, jumping in the air, expecting to show him a firing a fire in a straight one on legs. Don't him. And then he got out at Henley a couple of times cheap. And he arrived at Old Trafford. And... We said, don't chirp him, don't say anything. I think Dominic Cork got into a bit of a spat with him, just pre-lunch. And we go, cook what are you doing? And he wasn't playing well. He was jumping all of edging and thing, Just say nothing, he's not going to get any. And I always remember, as we walked off at lunch to Old Trafford to get in the dressing rooms, we go up the stairs, and as we went up the stairs, I just out to call me, I noticed Lara. I went, Where's he going? He came towards the pavilion and then turned left and walked straight to the net's. And as, it was Channel 4 back in the day, and they did this lunchtime show, and they realised it. So as we were eating our dinner in the dressing room, kept on looking at the TV screen, and they kept on panning into Lara, netting. <laughs> he he for the whole 40 minutes, and we're looking at Corky, what have you done? Look at him. The afternoon he came out and just smashed us all over. Got the best under I'd seen. I'm like, Corky, there's a lesson. Keep your gob shut. Never seen him for The whole lunch just having a few... Few throwdowns and got some of the West Indies to go and have a bowl in. There's no bigger
0: um, time for English cricketer, I guess, in the Ashes. And you came out here and smashed Australia everywhere. And I think you made 600 plus runs in, in an Ashes in Australia, which was quite extraordinary. But you talk in your book about the lead up to that tour. And I guess you hadn't won an Ashes since 86, 87, and we were just used to absolutely not only beating England but caning England. Obviously,
2: that had an effect on the senior blokes you were playing with. Yeah, understandable as well because the Aussies were that good. But England got close to them in the 90s. Yeah. A couple of times they got close. They went 1-0 up at in one year, Uh, 98, 99 over here. It was close. Could have been quite easily 2-all. There was a run out of Michael Slater at Sydney. Made the Aussies win 3 1. If that decision, it should have gone England's way, gone England's way, it could have been 2 2. That'd have been a remarkable result for England when you think about the Aussie team back then. My word. So I remember, you know, I'd had a good season in 2002. Um, my first kind of standout season for England, four centuries in the summer against Sri Lanka and in India. So I remember arriving at the hotel uh, to get on the plane to go to Australia. And I'd never, I think I played one one day game against the Aussies. So I'd not really played against them, certainly not played McGraw and Warn So I'd have a, a glass of wine and just me being a bit of a cricket badger, I thought. Like, oh, you know, what? I'm going to sit with the senior guys, going to have a chat with them, and just see what's up. And after a glass of wine, I just said, uh, "Come on, give us an indication what happens in Aussie." And they told me a bit about the nightlife. And I said, "Oh, great. Okay, what about the cricket?" I said, uh, "Brisbane first test." I said, uh, and they went, oh, well, "Where do you want to start?" And they talked about the crowd that will be on you, they'd be spitting on you. I said, oh, that sounds nice. I said, "What about the cricket uh, cricketers?" I said, "Well, I said, Nas, I presume I'll be opening. I've done all right. You're not going to change that because yeah, you'll be opening." I said, all right, Glenn McGrath. And the faces and their eyes just kind of peeled out. I was like, all right, who's going to speak about Glenn McGrath? One of the scenes, you, know, you put one P on a, on a line, the other just hits it. New ball will be swinging away at 85 miles an hour. Every now and again, he nips one back. Top of off stump. There'll be four slips, a gully, probably short leg, Justin Lange. He'll be giving you plenty. Um, and by the way, when he bowls his bouncer, it'll be right on the money. And it'll be quick. I went, all right. I said, uh, sounds tough. I said, uh, If I manage to survive that spell, (laughs) it sounds like I won't. Uh, Warren comes on, what happens? Another senior guy goes, Jesus, got 15 different livers. Hayden comes in at Silly Point, Ricky on the drive, Steve Wars spitting on you, Gilly behind the stumps giving you plenty, Zooters, Hooters, Grooters, Indip. That zipper or that, that flipper thing that he bowls, it skids off the pitch about 150 miles an hour, it traps you on the crease. If McGraw's at the other end, you're probably scoring at 1.5, <laughs> scoreboard of not move. I remember looking and thinking, what the fuck are we getting on this plane for? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't quite, I don't quite get that. So I arrived in Australia fresh with no baggage. And I think, and I completely understand why they got to that mindset. I, I I really do because if you if you're beaten up by something for so long it just gets Im- embedded in your brain the negativity and as much as you try and say right this is different I'm gonna be positive it only takes one mistake or one failure and you're back into that old mindset so I decided to come out here and have a pop I really I thought right you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna try and give myself a sniff early try and play sensibly try and get in have a look and then I'm gonna take them on. I don't believe you can take on any great players or great teams without attacking them. I just don't think they're great because their disciplines and skills are better than what you've got. So the only way that you can compete against them is try and hit them off the length or hit them out of their mindset. And I did well in a warm-up game at the Allen Border Oval. I smashed their A-side for a big 100. And that gave me a belief that, yeah, I can score runs in Australia. The pitchers are true. You just got to survive that, that opening burst. But... The nerves of that first game in Brisbane, I'd never had nerves like that. I didn't sleep for three days. And I'm a pretty cool character. Really? Yeah, I, I didn't sleep because it was the ashes. And what really affected me more than anything was the anthems. Because, and people say, oh, how can that affect you? Well, you warm up and you go back to the dressing room normally and then you go out and play. But it was almost like another arrival out of the dressing room you had to go and sing the national anthem. I'd never done that before. Mm. And we were in the field and we were shambolic in the field. I dropped a catch. I think I I I I fumbled the ball about the third ball at gully. Just one straight to me, went straight through my hands. And I was a nervous wreck that first day. I dread to think, if we'd have batted on that first day, I can't think I'd have got anything. (laughs) You know, my mind was all over the place. And that's what Ashes cricket does for you. You know, it just, it felt so different. I'd played against India, Sri Lanka, the West Indies, Wazim and Waka, you know, Kirtley and Courtney. But the whole experience of the build-up for the Ashes, it was it was something that you know I'd not ever witnessed, or never kind of felt, and it was uh, it was just a little bit of an insight. But the insight of that first week of nerves, I got thirty odd, and then McGrath got dodgy LB in the second, and wanted, wanted it another set. <laughs> no DRS in them days, but Glenly <laughs> sending me on my ass. It's not even out. <laughs> but that first week gave me an indication from the first things where I hit a few bounds that you just got to attack them. We had to attack them and just try and get a mindset around the group that you know we've got to be really positive and try and take them on. And what were they like? Those blokes to play against? Oh, brutal, were they? Steve War was. I, I learned a lot from Steve War. I didn't speak to him because he didn't speak to you, and you felt you felt like you felt really small against them because they were that powerful. You know, they were big units anyway. You got Marty Hayden, mm. you know, Dizzy Gillespie, big units, powerful Bingley, and, and obviously Warney's He's just got an aura that I think when you play against those kind of teams I mean I had to act a lot you put on a bravado of that yeah I belong here and you look them in the eye but underneath you think oh, Jesus Christ they're good <laughs> and they're powerful and they're intimidating and I, I say to this day that the build-up for 2005 there was a lot of acting that went on because I I'd had a good season in two 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 three so I knew that you could p- compete against them but the only way that you compete would be aggressive and risky I don't think you could have beaten that team by playing orthodox, traditional cricket. And that's why we made a, a pact as me, the captain, and the coach, Duncan Fletcher, by 2005. We wanted a fresh set of minds. We wanted a younger set of players. And not necessarily younger, we just wanted minds that had not have been affected by the 90s and the early 2000s. And we needed players that could gamble and risk. We needed players that could look Glenn McGrath in the eye and Shane Wong go, you know what, if you ball a bad ball, I'm going to crash you. And if you bowl something in my heart, I'm going to be willing to take you on. And if as a team, the Aussies come at you, which they will, we've got to be together and we're all just going to go at them. Even if we get beaten up and even if we get embarrassed, we're going to be one unit that goes at them. And that's what we tried to develop over the course of 2004 leading into 2005 with a mindset of fearless. Try and go out there and enjoy playing against Australia because it's difficult to enjoy playing against that kind of team because you feel that they're on you all the time. So all I would say to, to the players and the group at the time, let's just see what they're like, if we can just put them under pressure. You know, they'll probably be able to withstand, let's be honest, but let's just see. But let's not, by the end of 2005, think, why didn't we just be a bit more risky? And if you think of the first game at Lords that we lost, it's the first time I gave the team a rollicking in my time. And I, I don't think I gave them a rollicking ever really just before we get to that test match so you're captain at this stage yeah
0: you, you did your big press conference you're the England captain it's the biggest job in the country you phoned home immediately
2: I, I did have a mobile in those days got the mobile out I said uh, dad uh, never guess what but keep it quiet but NASA's just stood down I'm going to be the test captain I was <laughs> and he said I'm on my way to work he said shit they must be struggling <laughs> So I started to build a, a unit that was that we felt. I, I never felt ultimately confident that we could beat Australia in five, but I felt we could give them a challenge. We'd won in South Africa the winter before; that was a great win because we had a bit of you know a bit of turmoil over there. There was lots going off, and we won there. And by the time we got to O five, it was like, well, we always get built up. Yeah, We're we like that in England. There's an enormous build up for yeah, that series. Big build up, but it, there was a bigger build up because we'd won every test at home in 204. We'd beat New Zealand West in his seven tests on the trot, gone to South Africa, won. You know, we'd beat Bangladesh easily. Um, I actually declared against Bangladesh early because I wanted to get to Sheffield Wednesday's Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> Which no one knew at the time, but yeah, I pulled us in and made sure we won, and I got to Cardiff to see the cup final. <laughs>
0: Perfect.
2: Yeah, you get those privileges of captain, don't you? Coaches go, what are you doing? I like, don't worry about it. We'll win. I'm thinking, I hope we do, because if not, I'm going to get absolutely caved for <laughs> this. the dish. Yeah, so we uh, go into Ashes with the Ashes Susan in '05 with all this expectation from the media, and you know, when you get heavily beaten in that first test, that, that's the first time I gave him a bollock in.
0: That is the end of Michael Vaughan, Part A. Plenty more to come, though, so tune in to Part B where Vaughan looks back at the famous 2005 Ashes series in detail.
1: And we can do it if we try, try, try If we try, try, try If we try, try, try
2: Listen